3: It is Wednesday, November the 10th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host, also political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Glad to have you here every weekday, Monday through Friday. It's 3 to 6 p.m. is when the show airs live. We hope you can listen across our affiliates. All sorts of ways to listen. They're all available. GuyBensonShow.com right there. You can also listen later, as many people do on the podcast every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the lineup today. Kimberly Strassel of The Wall Street Journal on the Durham investigation and the Russia investigation and those bombshells and revelations in recent days. Uh, She is one of the foremost experts on all of this. I cannot wait to get her reaction, including to some breaking news today on that front. U.S. Senator Rick Scott is also going to be here, Republican Florida chairman of the NRSC. Where do things stand a year out from the midterm elections? He is tasked and his organization with taking back the Republican majority, if possible, in the U.S. Senate. We will ask Senator Scott about that. Sandra Smith, our colleague at Fox News, she'll be here talking about today's really tough inflation numbers. We brought you some yesterday. wasn't great. It got worse today. We will bring you that information and get Sandra's analysis coming up in our next hour. And finally, in our last hour, the happy hour, Joe Concha will join us with his media analysis. That's sort of his wheelhouse. And Joe will be here in the happy hour. Fox News alert as we begin today's show. Stats, coronavirus cases all in in the United States, 46.6 million. The real number is tens of millions higher than that. We're seeing some of the worst outbreaks, by the way, right now. I saw a headline about urban areas in California, also Colorado. I know that doesn't fit with a certain narrative, but that's the reality. The good news is between roughly 80 percent of eligible Americans having at least one vaccine shot, plus many millions of people with natural immunity, the death toll and the hospitalization rates overall, for the most part, are significantly down. There are spikes here and there, but that's the reality. And some of the places that were suffering worst over the summer, Florida, Georgia, they now have the lowest case rates in the country. The death toll with or of COVID in the United States, cumulatively, 756,951. The Dow is down today, 253 points. It is trading just above 36,000 at this hour. Well, I had an opening monologue prepared on a political topic, but I look at my monitor here in the radio studio at Fox DC, the Tony Snow Studio and Fox News Channel plus CNN, MSNBC. All of the networks are currently covering live this cross-examination by the prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse, who's on trial for murder in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, this is an episode that I have not followed extremely closely. I read about the Jacob Blake shooting at the time, followed that a bit. That was the individual who was shot by police who responded to a call. Jacob Blake was apparently violating a court order, a restraining order. There was a woman that he had allegedly assaulted. The police showed up. He had a knife. He went for his knife. And he was shot. It was reported widely at the time, falsely, that he was unarmed. So this was cops shoot unarmed black man. And there were massive riots in that town. And we talked about it here on the show at the time. Kenosha, I mean, we saw it in, you know, Oakland, California or Portland, Oregon or Chicago, Illinois, Washington, D.C. Kenosha, Wisconsin is not like those communities. And you had parts of Kenosha burned to the ground by left-wing agitators who were demanding, quote-unquote, justice through violence. And I would say the local authorities were ill-prepared to handle that destruction. The state of Wisconsin sort of fell down on the job, and that city burned for a night, and there was more chaos the next night. As I recall. Now, in the midst of that chaos, this kid, this teenager, Kyle Rittenhouse, who lived in Illinois, he got his gun and he came up to Kenosha. And I guess he fancied himself some sort of, you know, defender of property or liberty or order. And I think that there were some citizens saying, "Okay, if the authorities aren't going to restrain the rioters and the mob, we will take it upon ourselves to do it. Which is a recipe for disaster and bloodshed, which is exactly what occurred. Rittenhouse ended up in the process of one of these chaotic evenings getting attacked. He panicked. He was running away from some armed people and he ended up shooting three of them, two of whom died. And I know some people on the right have made a lot about uh, the rap sheet of some of these people who were shot and saying these are hardly upstanding citizens. I mean, point taken, that's also not a reason for someone to be shot in the street by anyone else, right? We have a legal system, and just because someone has a a very perhaps checkered or ugly history, there's no license to go shoot them, right? So I think that's one point that needs to be made. I also think a point that needs to be made, and again, these are broad strokes. I have not been in the weeds Every twist and turn of this trial, my colleague at townhall.com, Julio Rosas, who was there for the rioting. In fact, some of his videos that he took and images that he and other journalists took that night, they have been introduced into evidence at this trial. So at townhall.com, Julio has been covering this very closely. And this cross-examination is happening literally live right now in the courtroom in Kenosha, and these networks are, are all taking it live I've seen some effort, some movement on the right to almost make a folk hero and valorize Kyle Rittenhouse. Like Kyle Rittenhouse, like, you know, people are rooting for him or, you know, he's kind of become something of of a cult figure. I don't think that he is any sort of hero. Speaking of. Again, based on my imperfect knowledge of the story, he shouldn't have been up there. He shouldn't have been armed. This was not a smart thing or a responsible thing at all for him, a teenager, to cross state lines with a gun and be involved in this melee whatsoever. Two people are dead. Another one was wounded in the incident that occurred. Right, A lot of blood was shed, and I think that some people go overboard in sort of uh, you know turning Kyle Rittenhouse into something that he isn't and shouldn't be considered as. However, was and, – and let me just add, it is possible in some of these lesser charges or allegations that he could have broken the law or certainly acted very irresponsibly and you know, shouldn't have been there in the first place, let alone with a long gun. I'm not saying that he is innocent of all crimes, and that is the purpose of the legal process playing out as it is right now. However, the way that he was – and this is, the, this is where it turns – the way that he was portrayed by the media in many cases, some of the same media that were talking about Jacob Blake being an unarmed man, which was false misinformation that fueled a narrative that led to a lot of destruction and harm and violence – A lot of that same media instantly painted Rittenhouse as a violent murderer, a vigilante murderer who went out and murdered people. And I see some folks are insisting on turning it racial, even though I think the facts of the case don't really have a racial angle. But there are some people whose brains are stuck on race. And so they try to make everything about race. And. That's the way that Rittenhouse has been portrayed in much of the press. But to convict someone of murder, and I think there's a strong argument, I'm seeing some of the legal minds that I follow on social media who I trust, who believe that the prosecution way overreached in terms of the charges that they filed. I think part of that was driven by this panic about the mob, right? The mob wants their version of mob justice. So it starts with riots, and then it, comes next to demands for certain charges. And if you don't charge all the way up to these murder charges, then that's not, quote, justice, and therefore there's this implicit or even explicit threat of additional violence and unrest and rioting. And so you have these charges filed, and as the trial has unfolded, especially these last two days, it would appear that the prosecution's case has absolutely fallen apart because there is actual evidence that's come into play here. Video and photographic evidence and also witness testimony. So one of the biggest pieces of witness testimony occurred yesterday where there was a question and answer session. This is the witness, the third person who was shot by Rittenhouse. The other two are dead and they're is, I would say, at least significant evidence that those shootings, while awful, should have never happened. The argument is he did it in self defense, and there is evidence that backs that up. These were armed people chasing, seeking to harm him. This was at least what the defense is saying, pretty plausibly, why he pulled the trigger. The one surviving person who was shot admitted in testimony under oath in trial yesterday that rittenhouse didn't shoot him until he the witness drew his weapon and pointed his gun at rittenhouse which would be kind of textbook self-defense i'm not an attorney but i think to the average person or a juror this was a huge moment in yesterday's trial cut 19 with your arms up in the air he never fired right correct it wasn't until you pointed your gun at him advanced on him with your gun, now your hands down, pointed at him, then he fired, right? Correct. Correct. Not until the gun was pointed at him did he fire. Correct. Says the witness. That's a huge moment, although a lot of the testimony of that same guy, his name is Gage, a lot of his testimony, the media focused on other elements of it, not the huge turning point moment where he just admitted what happened. Because the media that can't help itself, that stoked with misinformation, the riots in the first place, and then cast Rittenhouse as a murderer, they are now covering in their own special way the trial with certain takeaways for casual observers, almost as if Let's say the verdict comes down that he's not guilty on the most serious charges, perhaps that were not warranted in the first place. There could be this sense of outrage and a lack of justice, and we could see a repeat, more unrest. This is why certain media outlets and figures are so unbelievably irresponsible. And it's, it's a vicious cycle, and they all get on their high horse about misinformation, even when they themselves are purveyors of it far too often. I saw Rittenhouse earlier was on the stand, and he broke down and started to cry. And it was trending on social media that people were comparing him to Brett Kavanaugh. Just ridiculous. And if you can just for one half a second think that you have been falsely accused of something, sexual assault or murder, and the nation is watching— And you get upset about those allegations. It's like, oh, through a certain lens, it's proof that you're guilty or that you're a hothead or whatever. This is the type of stuff that gets trending on social media. Now, one moment, another viral moment from the trial today was the judge absolutely tearing into the prosecutor where the prosecutor was asserting something. You'll hear a voice interrupt him. It's the judge. This is not what you want to hear if you're trying to prosecute a case successfully. Cut 17. This was earlier today.
4: That the defendant was using this exact same weapon. He was using it in a manner to try and protect property. No, he wasn't. There's your honor. I, with all due respect, I'm not going to rehash the motion. Yeah, that's absolutely untrue. It and is. There's, no, no, no. Your arguments of record. My comments are of record, and why I ruled as I did is of record. There's nothing that I heard in this trial to suggest anything's changed. Even if you're correct in your assumption that you know more than uh, I did at the time, uh, you should have come to the court and say, I want to go into this. Uh, Why you would think that you could go into it without any advance notice to the court, I don't understand that. And as the uh, defense is pointing out, you're an experienced trial lawyer, and this should not have been gone into
3: Yikes. At first, when I saw the clip, I assumed the person interjecting was the defense attorney I was waiting for an objection. No, it was the judge upbraiding the prosecutor. So the defense team actually moved for a mistrial that was denied just minutes ago. Probably worth the shot there based on that exchange. But for the judge to be yelling at the prosecutor that way, clearly frustrated, he ended up saying, I don't want to see anything like this ever again. Do I make myself clear? I'm paraphrasing. Not a great day. Now, this prosecutor is literally right now, as we speak live, cross-examining the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. And I put my cards on the table. I have not been closely attuned to the trial, every jot and tittle, every twist and turn. I have not been deeply invested in it. But it has become a huge national story. One of the themes along the way has been irresponsible, loaded, ideologically driven coverage by a media that takes sides, even when it's not accurate or fair to do so. So a potentially politically influenced motive uh, or, or motivated Prosecution that seems to be struggling and wheezing badly over these last two days. Which doesn't make Kyle Rittenhouse a hero, but he also deserves a fair trial and should not be convicted of something of which he is not guilty. That's my take for now. Maybe a bit of a lukewarm take. Just getting started on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: Guy Benson will be right back. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
3: I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. There's a story today in Axios about how some more moderate Democrats have struck on a new phrase, a new term to describe themselves, to try to distinguish themselves from the left, which is normal. We're normal Democrats. This is perhaps their strategy heading into 2022. Oh, don't lump us in with them. We're the normal Democrats. Here's the problem with that. That's almost exactly what Joe Biden did. Now, Joe Biden was not one of these crazy people out there on the left from the Warren or Bernie wing of the party. He was the normal Democrat that people knew and kind of liked and they were familiar and he could bring back normalcy and unity and that kind of thing. How has that gone? How has he governed? It has not been normal. It has not been mainstream. It has not been moderate. Some of these exact same, quote, normal moderates are reportedly talking about voting on trillions of new spending without even a CBO score. Is that normal? They can say the word normal. It doesn't work because we can see the results of the Biden presidency.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in today and every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonshow.com. At Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow our accounts. We are joined now by Kimberly Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal and their editorial page. You can also check out her latest book, Resistance at All Costs. She's a Fox News contributor. Kim, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Guy. Great to be here. I referenced your column from last week a few different times on the show involving the updates in this Durham investigation into the Russia investigation, its origins, the way that it was carried out by the Justice Department and everyone involved. I think there's obviously a media angle here as well. We've talked to a number of people who are up to speed on this case and have really followed it quite closely, including Molly Hemingway and Andy McCarthy. I would put you right there with anyone in terms of your expertise on the Russia investigation and now these Durham revelations that I think it's just two indictments so far. But these indictments tell quite a story. If there are one or two really important takeaways – that our listeners need to know about what is happening and what we're learning. From your perspective, what would those takeaways be? Sure, I
0: think the number one takeaway is that for the past however many years, we've all been referring to this dossier as the Christopher Steele dossier, uh, named obviously after this former British intelligence officer who wrote it and which was pitched to the United States as a an intelligence product. It's more correct to say now, given the Durham indictments, that this was a Clinton dossier Um, because we now know we've known for some time that it was, in fact, commissioned by the Clinton campaign. But what we found from the Durham indictment is that it turns out that at least some of the information that went into it actually came from someone within the Clinton orbit, a man named Charles Dolan, who was a longtime Clinton crony, as it were, a longtime activist in Democratic politics. Uh, So the campaign's fingerprints are all over this from beginning to end, from the information that went into it, to the fact that it was commissioned, to the fact that it made it out to the press and was pushed that way. There's still things to discover there. So that would be one thing. The other thing, which is just very, very striking is that for years now we were told that uh, the dossier explained how it was that the Russians were helping Trump in this campaign. Um, uh, uh, Even though the dossier has been discredited, that's been the storyline. If you look at this indictment, what's really striking is the degree to which it looked like Russians were assisting Mrs. Clinton, at least within her endeavor to get this dossier as part of the storyline.
3: So there could have been Russian disinformation in the dossier itself that was contributed to by Clinton World and paid for by Clinton World, perhaps with an assist from Russians peddling disinformation to harm Donald Trump and his campaign. And I I just want to add, we know that the Russians in other ways were absolutely rooting for Trump or were trying to help Trump or hurt the Clintons, but it, it seems increasingly likely that they were to some extent playing both sides here.
0: Right. And, you know, it's quite extraordinary. The indictment goes out of its way to point out its concern about who all Danchenko, Igor Danchenko, the primary source for Christopher Steele in this dossier, how many people... Who was just indicted, right?
3: Danchenko was indicted right. and today he pleaded not guilty. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Correct. Yep. No. And But the indictment expresses alarm at how many people Danchenko told he was working on this project people from all over corners of the globe, including other Russians. Um, So that's something that, by the way, Durham goes out of his way to point out here and, and leaves you to understand that the concern is that the more people who knew he was working on this project, the more opportunity for people to or, for instance, Russians to peddle information for him that would serve, as you say, disinformation. Also, Dolan, this person who worked in Clinton world. Uh, we don't know much about him he and by the way, I should just in fairness to him, say his attorney has said that they're not commenting on ongoing investigations, so we haven't heard his side of the story yet. But he was all enmeshed in Russia world. He uh, helped the Russian government for a while do global PR uh, in the year in which this um, dossier was put together. He was traveling to Russia. Let's
3: just linger there for a second, Kimberly. So you've got this guy who'd worked with the Clintons, Bill Clinton on his campaign as the Democratic Governors Association. He was attached and involved with, on some basis, the Hillary Clinton campaign. This is a longtime Democrat guy who is also – Being paid by the Kremlin to do PR for them around the world, he is one of the people feeding information, unsubstantiated and or discredited information, to Danchenko, who then gives it to Steele, who puts it in his dossier that's paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC, a fact that was not known for quite some time and, in fact, was apparently concealed even from FISA judges at certain points. We learned that from the uh, inspector general. I believe it was last year or late 2019. So much of this stinks to high heaven. It reeks, Kim. Right, right. And then and then, add this, this is also one of my favorite
0: parts of the dossier guy, is that they obtained an email uh, that uh, Dolan sent to uh, someone in, a, a colleague, a U.K., a U.S.-based acquaintance in uh, around June 2016. And he's describing Danchenko to him. And he says, quote, he is too young for KGB, but I think he worked for FSB since he told me he spent two years in Iran. And when I first met him, he knew more about me than I did, end quote. So here's a guy, by the way, working in Clinton orbit who is talking with and giving information to a guy that he suspects might have been Russian intelligence, And, you know, this also raises a lot of questions, too, about Danchenko. Like, we do know he spent a stint working at the Brookings Institute, but nobody knows a great deal about what he did, you know, in his earlier life.
3: There was also a piece of this puzzle as well where allegedly some of this intel or whatever about Donald Trump that made its way into this – dossier. And the reason that it's important to focus on the dossier is it was central and essential to the entire investigation, including FISA warrants to spy on Americans connected to the Trump campaign. Like you cannot just separate out the Steele dossier from this broader story, because as the inspector general said, the DOJ, it was both central and essential, as I mentioned there. But some of this information that made it into the dossier was attributed to some republican source or republican friend and then it turns out that that conversation or that friend was, you know, an imaginary friend, that conversation never happened and that information slash quote-unquote intelligence was simply made up? What was that about?
0: Right. So uh, at one point Danchenko reaches out to Dolan and says, can you give me, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, can you give me any rumor or any end or gossip at all about Paul Manafort, who had only recently been fired as a Trump campaign manager. And uh, Dolan says, yeah, you know, let me go talk to some friends. And then he sends an email back that says, yeah, I had a conversation with a a good GOP buddy, and and here's what I found, and sends it back to Danchenko. And Danchenko puts this almost verbatim into his report, although he uh, sort of— blows up the information or exaggerates the information and suggests that it it, it came from someone who was very close from Trump. And later, Dolan admits to the FBI that he never had a lunch with anybody. He never had that conversation. All he'd done is read a media report and send it on to Dan Jacobs. So literally, we have like this game of telephone that then gets presented to the FBI. And by the way, that's another aspect of the story here, Guy, is the FBI's role in this, because one thing that's a little frustrating, and I, I get why Durham is doing it, he's he's because he's going after people who lied to the FBI, sources, he's sort of portraying the FBI as the duped party here. But as even Inspector General Michael Horowitz said, this was either extraordinary incompetence or bias, that they just didn't bother to deal with any of this for as long as they did.
3: Yeah, and... I think it might sound to maybe a casual observer that it's odd that we're talking so much about this on this show. Except this broader issue and this controversy and the allegations of collusion, Manchurian candidate—you know, what does the Kremlin have on him and compromat and all this stuff—it hung over the entire Trump presidency, almost the entire Trump presidency. It hung over like a dark cloud our politics for years, and there were media outlets, and I'll get into the media angle with uh, Joe Concha later I think but there were media outlets that were on this every single day for hour after hour after hour and now that it's sort of falling apart at the seams I think it's important to draw attention to that because the other the other side of the ledger was built up so big and for that to have turned out much of it to be totally unsubstantiated or proven false with perhaps you know real corruption involved that deserves as much scrutiny as the initial allegations themselves did, at least I think for the purposes of fairness and journalistic ethics, it ought to. Which brings us to a soundbite that I want to play for you. Kimberly, this was from yesterday on The View. So just a disclosure, she's a personal friend. Morgan Ortegas, also the spokeswoman for Secretary Pompeo in the State Department uh, in the latter part of the Trump administration. She was sort of the right-leaning co-host on The View yesterday. Adam Schiff, was a guest in studio on set with the ladies. He's, of course, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, and he was confronted by Ortega's about the dossier. This is a bit of a long clip. It's about a minute long. Here's the exchange, Kimberly. I want you to listen, and then I'll get your reaction. Cut five.
1: You defended, promoted, you even read into the congressional record the Steele dossier. Um, and we know last week the main source of the dossier was indicted by the FBI for lying about most of the key claims in that dossier.
5: First of all, uh, whoever lied to the FBI or lied to Christopher Steele should be prosecuted.
1: But you may also spread rest of disinformation get- yourself for years by promoting this. I think that's what Republicans and what people who entrusted you as the intel committee chair are so confused about your culpability in all of this.
5: Well, I completely disagree with your premise. Uh, It's one thing to say allegations should be investigated, and they were. Mm -hmm. It's another to say that we should have foreseen in advance that some people were lying to Christopher Steele. But let's not use that as a smokescreen to somehow shield Donald Trump's culpability for inviting Russia to help them in the election, which they did, for trying to coerce Ukraine into helping them in the next election. None of that is undercut. None of that serious misconduct is in any way diminished by the fact that people lied to Christopher Steele.
1: No, I think just your credibility is.
3: So she kind of got that final, I think, deserved shot in it at the very end. What do you make, Kimberly Strassel, of the question from Ortega's and then the way that Schiff decided to respond to it? Well, first
0: of all, good on her, by the way. This is, to my mind, one of the first times Adam Schiff has ever been called out on his irresponsible, somewhat almost reprehensible behavior of recent years. Um, He didn't answer her question because she was right and he doesn't have an answer. But he did manage to stick in a few more falsehoods into that statement. He said, oh, Well, you know, I I called for the allegations to be investigated. That is a complete misremembering of history. When the dossier came out, Adam Schiff read it from the floor into the congressional record as if it were fact. And for two years, as Republicans worked their tails off to try to get to the bottom of this, he did nothing but obstruct that investigation. Uh, You know, during depositions and hearings, he flacked for Steele and for the dossier authors and fanned the flames of this. He had no interest in getting to the bottom of who was behind it. And by the way, that's what that congressional investigation was supposed to be about. So if he'd have been working side by side with Devin Nunes, maybe we'd have been hearing this story years earlier. But hit up against the Democratic wall of obstruction of this, it made it much harder for anybody to get the information that we're now getting from Durham.
3: Yeah, and, and also it's like a who could have ever envisioned that perhaps someone had lied to Christopher Steele. People were alleging that immediately, saying that a lot of this smells like absolute BS. Where are you getting this? There were almost instantly certain facts asserted in the dossier that were plainly disproven instantly. So there were people from the get-go making that point. That was ignored by Schiff, who took this seriously, and a lot of the media did as well, and they were treating it as fact or close to fact. And there was one part, Kim, in that answer where – and we we snipped it a little bit just for time because it was a pretty long exchange overall. It was more than two minutes. But he was going down the list. Well, we can't allow the dossier falling apart to be a smokescreen to distract us from these other things. For example, Trump invited Russia. Uh, you know, to hack into the DNC. You know, he said that in this, I think, very inappropriate campaign statement that he said publicly. Uh, So he brings that up. He brings up the Ukraine matter and, you know, some of the quid pro quo and that pressuring that led to the first impeachment. I thought that was an abuse of power from President Trump. I didn't think it was impeachable. I thought it was worthy of something like a censure. It was bad, has nothing to do with the Steele dossier. He also brought up and we cut this, but he brought up January 6th which I also think was extremely bad and a national embarrassment for which President Trump has a significant deal of culpability. We don't have to pretend that none of those things exist. And you can agree or disagree with any of my characterizations there, Kim. Those things do not have a bearing on whether or not the Steele dossier, the central basis in many ways for this Russia investigation, was – blown out of proportion and treated as gospel by a lot of people, including Adam Schiff and much of the media, to color our politics, undermine a campaign and a president for years, that is still a massive, scandalous story, independent of what you think of President Trump on some of these other points that I just ticked through. I'll give you the last word, Kimberly.
0: I couldn't agree more with you. This is a question of can the American public walk and chew gum at the same time? Yes. Right. Are they capable of looking at the Trump administration and making their judgments about all of those episodes that Schiff put forward? Sure. Are they also capable of understanding that the Clinton campaign and Democrats may have executed one of the biggest dirty political tricks in modern time? Yeah, they can get that too. Um, and so that's why it was a non-answer. Um, you know, Schiff deserves to give up. He, he, he's obliged. He ought to give a big apology to the nation for the last behavior <laughs> yeah, of the last few years. I don't see that happening. But, you know, we can go to bed wishful every night.
3: Kim Strassel, columnist at The Wall Street Journal, part of their editorial board. Her latest book is Resistance at All Costs. She's a Fox News contributor. Kim, always enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Me too, guys. Thank you. Kimberly Strassel on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this break.
2: Kai Benson will be right back. The results of Tuesday's elections are in. All votes have been fairly counted. And I, of course, accept the results. I want to congratulate Mr. Dark and wish him the best of luck.
3: As earlier today, Steve Sweeney, the soon to be former. New Jersey Senate president, a long-tenured, powerful Democrat, at last conceding the race that he lost more than a week ago to Edward Durr, a trucker with no political experience who spent $153 on his entire campaign, much of which came in the form of donuts. Sweeney held out for a long time. He claimed that there were some ballots that were found or something, but then eventually he realized, nope, it was over, and he conceded. Today. I mean, what an extraordinary upset. He also was quoted as saying this was a red wave and a lot of people participated, turned out. And this Republican, a no name Republican, won. I did see CNN was going through some of his bad old tweets, Edward Durr. And they were bad, right? These bad old tweets. It seems kind of like vengeance, right? Punishment from CNN for this Republican deigning and daring to win. Some belated Oppo research from Fusion CNN. Maybe Sweeney could have used it in the campaign. Imagine that. Another hour coming up.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative Guy Benson Show.
3: It's our middle hour on The Guy Benson Show. On this Wednesday, thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free, GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow closes down 240 points, off-session lows but still in the red, ending the day at 36,079. One small note as well, the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan bill that passed out of the House on Friday night, much to the chagrin of many Republicans, although there were Republicans in both chambers who voted in favor of it, the president and the White House announcing that they will do a bill signing on Monday of that bill and make it lost. So just a heads up there. As we begin the hour, I want to bring you an update on our vice president. Sometimes it's unclear where she is at any given time, which actually led us to create a brief segment, a little uh, theme song almost for the vice president. Where in the world is- Kamala Harris. <laughs> well, she's actually in France on uh, an official government trip. There was a clip of her today in France speaking with some people, I guess, at some sort of scientific facility. And it sounds like she starts to almost put on a little bit of a French accent, which was uh, a little cringy. Here it is in in cut 15, making the rounds today.
6: With us in government, we campaign with the plan. (laughs) Uppercase T, uppercase (laughs) P, the plan. And then the environment is such that we're expected to defend the plan. Even when the first time we roll it out, there may be some glitches and it's time to reevaluate and then do it again
3: the plan there is the plan you leave her there for one more week she'll have a beret a long cigarette the plan it it it's just a walking talking embodiment of veep who happens to be actually the veep and to her credit and this is actually perhaps a bit of an achievement she is in europe she is in France. remember this Back in June, she was asked about why she had not gone to the border, as the border crisis czar, doing a great job, obviously. And part of her very strange answer to that question with NBC News was this, cut 20.
2: Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border?
3: I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been
6: to the border. So this whole, this, whole, this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border.
2: You haven't been to the border.
6: I, and I haven't been to Europe and I mean I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border.
3: That was so strange. That was so awkward at the time. And of course, we got the laugh. We got the laugh in there at her little joke about having not gone to Europe. She said, We've been to the border. He said, well, you haven't. She's like, well, I haven't been to Europe. <laughs> well, now she's in Europe. So that must be very exciting for her. On Jimmy Kimmel's show last night. That's if you're unfamiliar, Jimmy Kimmel is a Democratic strategist and part-time comedian, and he's got a show on one of the networks that loses to Greg Gutfeld every night. Gutfeld on cable, Kimmel on broadcast, and he loses every night to uh, Greg Gutfeld, which is fun. Jimmy Kimmel's just sort of, um, kind of, just sleazy. Uh, quasi- comedian guy who gets a lot of his talking points literally written for him by Chuck Schumer. that was actually revealed when he'll come out and do some of his little indignant monologues about Republicans, he gets his quote unquote facts from Chuck Schumer's office. So he's a democratic strategist, also a self-appointed pope uh, you know he he wants everyone to take his moral decrees very seriously as he should. I mean he made His career as a guy who sat around drinking beer as women jumped on trampolines. Right. This is this is someone who can absolutely preach from on high to all of us. So this Democratic strategist and part time comedian had some thoughts about Kamala Harris. It's been uh, not a great couple of weeks on polling for President Biden or for Vice President Harris. We talked about how Harris was uh, just about as unpopular as Biden, slightly less popular, as a matter of fact, in this uh, Suffolk USA Today poll. And Jimmy Kimmel was upset about this, a fellow Democrat, you know, is under attack, not not garnering rave reviews from the American people. So Kimmel decided that obviously the problem is the American people, cut 14.
2: Americans really aren't happy with this vice president, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has an approval rating of 28%, which is makes no sense because she basically has nothing to do. I mean, it's like <laughs> criticizing a backup quarterback. Tom Brady is okay. I don't love the way Blaine Gabbert has his legs folded on the bench. I have to be honest. Kamala's approval rating uh, of 28% is even lower than the 30% who approved of Dick Cheney in 2008 after he shot a guy in the face. I think these people are forgetting that at least 10% of of those polled approved of Dick Cheney because he shot a guy in the face. I think I know why Kamala's ratings are low, besides sexism and racism, which are the obvious ones.
3: Besides sexism and racism, the obvious reasons why her approval rating is so low. Well, you know, she's at negative 23 in that poll, underwater by 23 points. Biden is statistically the same, uh, underwater by 21 points. Last time I checked, Joe Biden is a very white man. Now, is it sexism and racism that explains his poor approval rating or is that only For his similarly unpopular vice president who he's put in charge of some big things like the border, which is a disaster. I know he's saying the vice president doesn't do anything. Maybe that's part of the problem. She's tasked with things and then doesn't do them or doesn't do them well. So it's sexism and racism that explains why Harris is unpopular, but fill in the blank for why Biden's unpopular. I'm sure it's probably more of the same. Because they see sexism and racism as a built-in excuse always and forever. It couldn't possibly be the failures of the administration and the leaders of that administration and the two most high-ranking government officials in the entire United States of America. I know. It's, It's a big, difficult thought for Jimmy. So he's got his answer there. It's sexism and racism. I actually do have a thought, though. Kind of like a follow up question for uh, for Jimbo here, which is why is it that Kamala Harris, when she was running for president? Remember, she called Joe Biden a racist. During that campaign, Remember that one, she was running for president. She wanted his job, not her current job. She was such a bad candidate for president that she didn't even survive. The candidacy did not even survive to Iowa. She dropped out before a single primary or caucus voter even showed up. And I know this might be difficult for Jimmy to remember if he even knows this stuff. Maybe you get a little quick refresher or tutorial from Chuck Schumer. But that was a Democratic primary. That was all his team, their side. And by his team, I mean, you know, the Democrats, the side you know that he embodied, for example, when he lost to Ted Cruz in a one-on-one basketball game, something he should never live down. Hilarious. It was his team, his party, the enlightened non-racist misogynists supposedly in their party who were so unimpressed by Kamala Harris that they rejected her forcefully enough in the polls that she didn't even bother to come to Iowa to get humiliated and lose badly by her own side's voters. Maybe that's also sexism and racism, Jimmy. I don't know. But the proof was in the pudding in the Democratic primary. So my theory is. Maybe her approval rating. Is a tied to the flailing president. Tied to the failing administration. In which she is a major part. Tied to her. Poor execution. And poor results. On one of the most high profile items in her portfolio. Immigration. And tied to the fact. That that she is an insufferable phony, and it's so obvious. Perhaps Jimmy Kimmel has a sort of knee-jerk, understandable defensiveness when it comes to fellow insufferable phonies. That could be part of it. Or it could just be that he has uh, sympathies or has a soft spot for people like Kamala Harris who will literally laugh at anything. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
3: I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening. We are joined now by U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida. He is the chairman this cycle of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Senator, good to have you back on the show.
4: It's great to be back on the show, and what a week last week. We had the big wins in um, Virginia. We had three statewide judicial races in Pennsylvania. We had almost won the governor's race in New Jersey. Got rid of the state Senate president, Democrat state Senate president in New Jersey. So pretty good week.
3: Yeah, I mean, it certainly was. And some of the polling numbers for the president, the vice president, and their agenda are not great at all. Then we get the inflation numbers today. We'll get into that coming up later this hour with Sandra Smith. But it's been kind of rough here uh, for the Democrats. I know one year away is is far, right? A lot can change in politics and fortunes can shift. However, as you are looking at at least the current writing on the wall, what do the things that you just mentioned portend in your mind for 2022, especially in your realm, the Senate?
4: Well, I'm the chairman of the National Republican Central Committee. We are going to win in 22. We're going to get back a majority. Um, if you can see, you can see it in, in, the, in the races last week. Suburban voters voted with us. Hispanic voters voted with us. We've done we've done national polls to show people that Hispanics are fed up with the public school system. They don't want their kids to become dependent on government. So you can see that. when you look at suburban voters. Suburban moms know that the Democrats are teaching critical race theory. They're not going to be. You know, they don't. It doesn't matter what CNN or somebody says. They know what the, what the Democrats are doing and they're smart and they're going to come back and they're going to continue to vote with Republicans to make sure we turn this country around.
3: Senator, you just mentioned CNN, and I think you're referencing back to an interview that you did yesterday or earlier in the week. We played the soundbite on our show yesterday where the anchor there, this is one of their news people, Brianna Keeler, interrupted one of your answers about education and critical race theory to supposedly, ostensibly fact check you, saying that, Critical race theory is not taught in Virginia schools. You actually were prepared for that false fact check. You gave counterexamples and she sort of treated it like you didn't had you hadn't said those words at all. You had offered nothing. And she just kept saying, to be clear, it doesn't exist. It's not taught. It doesn't matter, I guess, what evidence you present to them. Uh, oh, they're no. just going to keep I mean, saying. And I think on the that's Virginia interesting. Department, from a news
4: network. Virginia Department of Education website doesn't matter. That don't, don't 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 look at the website. Don't don't do that. Just listen to me. That's what you want people to say. The yep, Democrats it, keep I've, doing exactly what they're doing because they're telling people they're not teaching critical race theory. They're clearly teaching that if you're one, your skin's one color, you're an oppressor, or another color, you're oppressed. That is not America parents are smart, and and I gave her the facts. It's on the website. So they're teaching in Virginia, and they're teaching around in different places around the country. Parents are going to show up. They're, They're sick and tired of their kids being indoctrinated.
3: Yeah, and I think these sort of misleading technicalities that they were attempting to thrust onto your plate on CNN yesterday that you rebutted with information. That's exactly what Terry McAuliffe tried to do in Virginia, and it didn't serve him well because a lot of the voters that were being moved by this issue could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears what was happening in their kids' classrooms. And you can just sort of you know pretend and wish it away like it doesn't exist. And to your point, you said you hope that Democrats continue – Uh, On that path or down that path, the media is right there with them as usual. It didn't work in Virginia. And if it didn't work in a blue state, a Biden plus 10 state, I'm not sure it'll work in more competitive states. You know, true uh, hardcore, you know, coin flip battlegrounds. So let's talk about some of those battlegrounds as we look at the map ahead uh, for next year. A bit of a blow. I think it's fair to say this week we covered it yesterday. Governor Sununu in New Hampshire, a prized recruit for you guys, uh, decide to take a pass on the Senate race. He's going to run for reelection as governor there and not try to dip his toe into Washington politics. You had Kelly Ayotte, who narrowly, I mean barely, by 0.1% lost the race to Senator Hassan last time out, six years ago. She's put out a statement saying she's not going to run. Are you feeling concerned about the Republican position in a state where it looks like the top two potential recruits aren't going to run, seems like a winnable race to me, but you need a quality candidate there to knock off an incumbent, right?
4: We're, we're going to win New Hampshire, and, and here's the reason why. First, Hassam has not defined herself very well, and she's very unpopular. I think there's a public poll says that Democrat Hassam is at 33%, say, 51%. Fade. She's already running ads right now, a year out, to try to get her approval ratings up. So we're talking to a lot of individuals. We already have one individual in the race. Uh, we're talking to a lot of individuals. I think we're going to have a good competitive Republican primary, and we're going to have somebody who comes out of that primary ready to beat Hassem and be a U.S. senator, which will be one of the ways we're going to the majority. But I, we have every reason to believe in Arizona and in Nevada.
3: Nevada, it seems like you've got a candidate who's polling pretty well, fundraising pretty well. What about... Arizona, since you mentioned it. It seems like, you know, the governor there would potentially be an attractive, appealing candidate. He has indicated he's probably not going to run. How are you feeling specifically about he's that Arizona guy. race? Cause...
4: He's not running. We have, we have four good people running now, um, and one of them is going to, you know, will be the one that, uh, that is able to win the primary. Maybe others will get in. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to have a good competitive primary there, and the person who has the best message is going to win. Do, and by the way, here's the reason we're going to win. I mean, remember Mark Kelly said he was a moderate. He is Chuck Schumer in Arizona. He's voted 100% of the time with Chuck Schumer. He's good friends with Bernie Sanders. This is not Arizona. That's not who Arizona elects. And so what we're, our job is to make sure everybody in Arizona knows exactly who Mark Kelly is. And he's not the moderate he portrayed himself in the 2020 right. election.
3: Well, yeah, he ran as Kirsten Cinema, and he's governing and voting like Chuck Schumer. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, quickly, we have about a minute left, Senator. When you look at some of these key states where you guys are going to be playing defense, Pennsylvania open seat, North Carolina open seat, Wisconsin sort of question mark there. That's very quickly your analysis on those races.
4: They're, they're going to be hard. Uh, but if you look, look at Pennsylvania, we won three statewide uh, judicial races just last week. Uh, the Democrats have competitive primaries. They're going to go far to the left, the same in North Carolina, the same in Wisconsin. And so I think we've got great people running. We'll see if Ron Johnson runs in in Wisconsin. I I would imagine he will. And I think as a result of, of the great candidates, we're going to win. And, by the way, Democrats have just – it's complete disarray on the Democrat side. And the generic ballot, this is the highest I've ever seen it. I think the last poll I saw, we're up eight points where people say, do I want a Republican or I want a Democrat? The Democrats have defined themselves as a party that people do not like.
3: Yeah, the environment right now for the Democrats is brutal. What will it look like in September of 22, October? That is the big question, and you guys will be fighting down that stretch. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, our NRSC chairman here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, thank you. We'll have you back, and we'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Appreciate you being here with me on the Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. Online, social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram, Guy P. Benson is my personal accounts there. We are joined now by our colleague, Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports, along with John Roberts. Weekdays, 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel and Sandra, great to have you back. Hey Guy, thanks for having me. Let's talk about today's inflation numbers. So yesterday we reported here that the wholesale inflation level rose 8.6% last month from a year earlier and in the Associated Press story they talked about upcoming metrics that were going to be released. The Labor Department will release on Wednesday its consumer price index for last month. According to a survey of economists, so these are the experts, it's expected to show that consumer prices rose 0.5 percent from September and 5.8 percent from a year earlier. So the numbers came in this morning and they're worse. This was the breaking news earlier U.S inflation was up 6.2 percent in October over a year ago. It's the highest inflation level in 31 years almost my you know the majority vast majority of my whole life uh, it's it's 31 years uh, this this high number and inflation was up 0.9 percent in October alone. and when you look at that in the context of wages, there's been some nominal wage gains. But it's been totally just swamped by inflation and reduced buying power. This is really hurting a lot of Americans. Contextualize, Sandra, today's report and what it means.
6: It means that it's the this is the ultimate tax. I mean, the very people that this administration says they're setting out to help are the very ones who are having to pay more out of their pocket for all these goods and services. And, Guy, I mean, it's at a time where the White House likes to tout a rise in wage growth, which is great. Ordinarily, that is great news, because wages have been going up. But that's getting eaten up by the rising price of just about everything. And, and Guy, I, I sort of chewed on this with Mark Keaton earlier today. It's a point I really think that people should start to dig into. And when the Fed says that inflation is transient, right? Which they're standing by that, sticking to their strategy, which, by the way, they define that as not permanent. Um, so, so this could <laughs> oh, be okay. around for a couple months. It could be around a couple of years. It could be around a decade. I don't know. Um,
5: right. Still be uh, transitory. Pins their,
6: transitory. Yeah. When the Fed pins their inflation estimates and where it's at, they don't use fuel and food it's remarkable. They use core inflation as their metric because food and fuel are seen as so volatile that they don't look at that. So the rising price of our Thanksgiving dinner and the rising price of of gas at the pump is not playing a part in their decision on their strategy. And that boggles my mind. (laughs) Um, So we have to consider the fact that they're not even looking at that, but that is certainly something the American family is feeling at home. And I don't know. I'm I'm talking to former Obama economists uh, who are saying that they don't think this is going away anytime soon. So this is going to be a big problem for the American family, but it's also going to be a big problem politically for this White House guy.
3: Yep, yeah, but for the Democratic Party. And I mean, you had Larry Summers warning about this for months, right? Saying this is too much, we're spending too much, this inflation could get bad, and then he was basically laughed off and, ex- and excused and dismissed by the White House. And now it's looking like he might have been right. And they're kind of uh, deer in the headlights. And, I mean, you can't spin Think away the bad. highest inflation number since October 1990. If you're listening right now, try to remember what you were doing in October of 1990, if you were even alive. A lot of our younger listeners were not alive in 1990. That's the last time inflation was this bad. And if they want to carve out food and fuel – Fuel, I mean, yeah. those are the things where, where people feel it the most you know, when they're going yeah, to the grocery I mean, store or ordering from their local restaurant or filling up their tank or getting ready to heat their house this coming mm-hmm. winter. That's the pinch that people are going to see on the most – on a regular basis. And, and that's and if you're a, sort of like, a, that's like that's really magic wanding out of your analysis, people are not going to take you seriously because it's the stuff that they most immediately feel in a lot of cases.
6: Right, um, and could put us in more trouble. If they're not going to adjust their strategy by looking at food and fuel prices, where are we going to be a few months from now? Gasoline prices are up 50% from a year ago. Fuel, um, home heating, oil, uh, natural gas is up. Uh, I believe the big the jump there is 28% year over year. Electricity uh, prices are higher, and we're expecting a very cold winter. Um, so we're going to be paying more to heat our homes as well. Joe Manchin this morning. And many other Democrats, yes. by the way, are raising about the red to flag you on this. this. You, had, you had the 11 Democrats who, who, who said, we got to do something about gas prices, right? And wrote, wrote Biden at the White House to do something. Joe Manchin, though, saying, by all accounts, the threat posed by this record inflation to the American people is not transitory. And instead, is getting worse, he said. From the grocery store to the gas pump, Americans know the inflation tax is real, and D.C. can no longer ignore the economic pain Americans feel every day. So I don't know. When asked what the plan is, Guy, to bring these prices down, we haven't heard a clear plan laid out by this administration, but they're going to have to have one because um, this is tangible stuff for the voters. They feel this, and they vote based on money flying out of their pocket in an extraordinary way.
3: Right, with a less uh, potent ability to... Purchase, right? Just a lower purchase power. People feel that it is this invisible tax that becomes highly visible when people are looking just at the receipt at the grocery store. And you just quoted Manchin. That was his tweet that he put out, 930 or so this morning. I found it very interesting, Sandra, because you know we're talking about the political implications perhaps a year down the road from now at the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. We just had Senator Rick Scott on talking about the Senate picture. There are potential political implications much sooner than the fall of 2022 because Manchin's been talking about inflation and the debt now for a while. It's not like all of a sudden he's a Johnny-come-lately warning about this stuff. In the context of the Democratic spending bills, he has been focusing on inflation and the debt for months. And for him to raise this again in light of this really brutal inflation report today, I wonder how that could potentially influence his thinking Or a few other Democrats thinking when they're being told by the White House, well, our next step in the middle of this inflation needs to be spending trillions of more dollars as soon as possible. That I think just the average person without an economics degree would say that doesn't seem to make very (laughs) much sense. And Joe Manchin has been saying it doesn't make sense. Maybe we should pause this thing for six months. I wonder if this. Report today, and these numbers might cause someone like Manchin to dig in, which could really imperil the Biden agenda
6: you, you got to do something I mean this is something that, that everybody's feeling uh, the effects of um, you know Steve Moore wrote a piece in the New York Post this morning, um, and he said it's unsettling that no one in the Biden administration seems to offer any plausible explanations or solutions, and he went on to to remind everybody at that moment with the energy secretary. Jen Granholm last Friday. It happened on, during my program when she laughed and threw her head back in hysterics, yeah. laughing at a question about what the plan is on the part of the administration to increase oil production. That is a totally reasonable question when you have an energy crisis happening right now. And I think that's the overall concern: is that when when asked, there is no clear laid out plan from this administration to bring the prices yep. down. Of just about anything, um, and I yep. think that that's I think that's that's the big concern. We're not
3: seeing a plan. Yeah, and, and the only plan that they seem to have is to spend trillions more. I mean that that's what's so wild about it. The plan seems like it would make things worse, and that's the political hole that they might have to dig out of. Sandra Smith, always appreciated on the Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. You know, it's time once again for Woke Tales. Woke tales I know the new thing is we can't say woke. AOC and the Project 1619 woman. I saw Kirsten Powers. or Oh, no, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, no, we can't say woke anymore. Nonsense. We will. It's a term that people understand. Yes, it's a catch-all, but that's the point. So out in Burbank, California, Southern California, the Unified School District down there, They have issued a statement removing certain books from school libraries and school curricula, including To Kill a Mockingbird, Huck Finn of Mice and Men and Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is written by a black woman with the hero of the book being a young black girl. But that one's banned. To Kill a Mockingbird also banned apparently because of white saviorism. That was part of the explanation here, white saviorism, because if I'm remembering correctly, I read it in high school. You've got Atticus Finch, the defense attorney, trying to persuade a jury in a racist system at the time that a black man falsely accused of assaulting a white woman was, in fact, innocent. And spoiler alert here, he failed, even though he made his case very strongly because – the system and that moment in time in that place was quite racist. In fact, you would think that would be lefty parents who would be perfectly comfortable with To Kill a Mockingbird. The lessons that are derived from that book. Now, But because Atticus Finch was a white lawyer, that's white saviorism. So for that reason and others, it's got to go. By the way, the reason that it had to be a white lawyer is because it couldn't be a black lawyer at the time. That's also part of the lesson. You'd think they would want the kids to learn that. No, no, white savior can't have that. By the way, were we not just told for weeks that there was a book banning effort in Virginia by the Republicans? Remember that? Terry McAuliffe, one of his closing arguments, Glenn Youngkin wants to ban books. They put in ads, People were repeating it. We had Juan Williams who got into it with him on this show last week. He was amplifying the same claim. Of course, it was totally false. Yunkin was attacking McAuliffe over vetoing legislation twice that was bipartisan, supported by both parties in the legislature in Virginia. That would have just alerted parents to sexually explicit materials being taught to their kids and giving them an opportunity to opt their own kid out. Not ban the book, but that's what Terry McAuliffe turned it into. Glenn Yunkin's book banning. Which was a lie. He kept saying it. The Washington Post fact check it. He kept saying it. But here we have an actual list of books being banned by lefties out in California. For a variety of reasons, including white saviorism, quote unquote. And then the same people who will on one hand say they're trying to ban books in Virginia because of the Republicans. False. I'm sure we'll applaud this book banning because that's good book banning by their side. And then they will also claim that CRT is not in schools, right? All the critical race theory, woke, equity focused, whatever their buzzwords are, all of that stuff is just in your head, you crazy parents, you crazy conservatives and independents who are upset about this stuff. It's not real. It's a trumped up phony culture war. That's a lie. CRT, this stuff, it's not in schools at all. It's not happening, you weirdos. And here's another example. Of exactly this type of thing happening, and you're supposed to just ignore that. That's how gaslighting works. So, sorry to kill a mockingbird fans or roll of thunder, hear my cry. No more. You've got uh, some erasure going on here for the good of the children, of course, for equity. It's CRT thinking, with CRT being a myth, they tell us simultaneously. And by the way, there have been instances, and I know there's a controversy right now in Texas, we've seen it in Oklahoma, Tennessee, and elsewhere, where right-wingers are trying to get books banned in schools. Let's just not do book banning, gang. Parental involvement, yes. Transparency, yes. Banning books, purity tests, this type of purge, no. Enough. Meanwhile, here's a story out in Arizona. Similar lines. Arizona State professor, at least this isn't a college, but again, some of the craziness in college ends up multiplying and metastasizing all over the country. His professor at ASU has determined that traditional grading systems are racist and white supremacy. And so this person is going to start grading papers based on effort because some students have privilege because they already embody the habits of white language and white privilege. So this professor arguing that grading is racist, quote, this is in the Daily Mail, he's now calling for grading students based on the effort they put into their work instead of factors like spelling, grammar or quality. Because we can't be judging people based on the quality of their work. That's racist. That's white supremacy, he says. (laughs) It's I mean, remember, all of this is made up. None of this is happening. If you object to any of it, you're wrong. You're inventing it. Glenn Young can put it in your head. Quality work is racist. And so judging students based on the quality of their work is unfair, violates equity, and therefore it's going to be effort. How can they possibly measure effort? Is the professor going to sit there with all of the underprivileged or non-privileged students? And watch them struggle through the assignment and then judge how much effort they put in. Maybe the bad quality of work sometimes is due to lack of effort. How can you possibly quantify that in a realistic way? And that could also just let kids off the hook. Like if you're a certain race, you can say, oh, well, I put so much effort, but the quality shouldn't matter because of the color of my skin. That seems to me to sound an awful lot like racism. President George W. Bush, the soft bigotry of low expectations. This is, as we have said before, and all this equity stuff, it is the institutionalizing. It is the codification of low expectations, which is not soft bigotry. It is formalized, official bigotry. And surprise, surprise, this teacher and his wife have launched an anti-racist teaching endowment that will fund multiple courses and presentations. Fenning out across the area in the country on topics involving things like labor-based grading. So a big equity woke push to lower or eliminate standards again. And if you notice it, it's really just a racist dog whistle to say anything about it. And it's just a figment of your addled imagination. It's that right-wing fever dream showing up in headlines again. I'd love to know, how do you grade based on effort? I'm sure he has a whole PowerPoint presentation, and he'd like to uh, sell it to a school district near you for lots of money. Do you give, like, arm muscle emojis instead of A, B, C, or D? You get a couple muscles for extra effort based on whatever crazy metric he comes up with. Then this other kid who's got way too much white privilege, he turns in a paper that is high quality with correct spelling and grammar, But maybe didn't really work hard enough, right? The the labor wasn't intensive enough to produce a quality product and therefore, you know, you get a demerit there. Maybe only one or two arm muscle emojis for that student. I wonder how the arm muscle emojis would affect your GPA. I think GPAs are probably racist, white supremacy there. Oh, really? You got a 3.7? Good for you. How racist is that? woke is a thing. This fits the bill. They want us to stop using the term while bowing to their increasing insanity. I very respectfully, or perhaps disrespectfully, frankly, decline. And that's Woke Tales on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. Joe Concha joins us straight ahead. Don't go anywhere.
2: clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit thelongdrink.com and now here's your host guy benson
3: happy hour here on this wednesday it's the guy benson show thank you so much for listening every day, Monday through Friday, three to six p.m. Eastern. And if you miss any of it, there's a podcast that is free on demand at your fingertips when the show ends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a recommendation to check us out on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally at Guy P Benson on both of those platforms as well. Happy Hour, sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, strongly recommended. 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com, that's their website. You can find out where this citrus soda with a premium liquor kick is sold near you. They're expanding. It is hugely popular, so much better than these hard seltzers. TheLongDrink.com, you can also order online, which is what we do. Let's bring in Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist as well, media critic, media columnist, and Joe, it's good to have you back.
5: How are you, guy? I'm looking forward to a little sun and fun in about 24 hours. Not sure about you. Sun and fun? Where are you headed? I'm going to go to a place called Palm Beach, and I can't really go into too much more from there. But let's just say uh, there's no better vacation than a free vacation. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, I think it's possible that I might be seeing you at perhaps the same event in the upcoming days.
5: Although you're leaving
3: before I am, you're getting an extra day out of this. It sounds like
5: I'm milking this for uh, three days, three Whatever they're willing to give me, I am taking every bit of it and then some. So uh, yeah, why not? We've it. earned it. <laughs> it's it's really do beautiful about? down there Indeed. in Palm Beach. It.
3: Well, let's let's start with this. I saw some news that Brian Williams is announcing his departure from. MSNBC and the NBC News family after nearly 30 years or 28-plus years at the network. And as he departs, I sort of wonder what your thoughts are on his legacy from the highs to the lows to the end of the show here for Brian Williams at NBC.
5: I'd say, Guy, I would do the exercise that a lot of people are doing right now probably listening to this show or what maybe you and I are doing right now if we play word association or name association. That is Brian Williams. And what's the first thing that comes to mind? And unfortunately, the first thing that comes to mind is the guy lied, right? And not just once, and he happened to exaggerate a story a little bit like, ah, the fish was – 14 inches, it was actually more like, you know, a guppy type of thing. No, uh, this was a situation, particularly back with the Iraq War, and he says he's getting shot at in a helicopter, and it never happened, and he said he was in the French Quarter seeing bodies floating by, and that never happened, and I could go through the litany of things that he said, and it was unforced. That's the thing that I never quite understood. He's telling Letterman this on late night, or he's saying this in this sort of interview. He never, well, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> probably going to uh, go down a, a rabbit hole here, He never lied about the things he lied about that have been proven lies on newscasts, but when he he tried to be a celebrity at the same time, you remember he was always on Jimmy Fallon's show, he was, you know, singing the news and doing that. I I think Brian Williams is indicative of a lot of people now in this business where they all want to be Woodward and Bernstein not for the journalism part and breaking the Watergate story but then all the celebrity that came with it afterwards where you got Redford and Hoffman playing you in a movie and you get the red carpet everywhere you go and I think a lot of people now in this business they would rather be invited on Colbert or Kimmel or Bill Maher's show than winning an Emmy or winning a Pulitzer because celebrity has taken over this business unfortunately and Brian Williams became I don't say a victim of that because it's his own fault but that was his goal and exaggerating stories made him a bigger star, a bigger celebrity? But it came back to haunt him. So I think his legacy in the end well, is just kind Brian of like inserting oh, that himself, right?
3: Inserting himself into the news, into these stories, and sort of pumping up, based on a fictionalized series of accounts, his own personal interaction or proximity to major news events. I think that was also maybe yeah. part of the creepiness here of what he got in trouble for. And eventually, remember, they they pushed him out for a while. Then they let him back in on MSNBC. They gave him a show actually at 11 p.m. on MSNBC, and there were rumblings that he wasn't happy doing that. He didn't like the hours. He didn't like this stuff, and I guess this is perhaps his own volition or maybe a mutual – Mutually agreed upon or, departure or something here,
5: but go on, another thought. Or, or maybe the contract ended, and they're like, we're not paying you what you originally signed for. And he's like, all right, well, I don't want to work at 11 o'clock anyway. Think of the MSNBC lineup for a second, Guy. I mean, it, it's it's quite remarkable. At 7 p.m., you have the Alex Jones of cable news in terms of Joy Reid, proven conspiracy theorist. This is somebody who was rewarded after she was caught lying about hackers into a blog and all the anti-Semitic and anti-homophobic uh, things. or Not anti-homophobic, that would, that would be a double negative Homophobic things right, it's a uh, that, that she said, right? Thank you. That was I was going for that. Uh, so that's that's your seven o'clock host. Uh, so she got rewarded for lying. Then nine o'clock, you have Rachel Maddow, who for three years bought hook, line, and sinker. She's the Adam Schiff of cable news, and she pushed that Russia collusion angle more than anybody, and still does to this day, even post Mueller report, even post Durham indictments, she's still going down that particular rabbit hole. So there's Rachel no, Maddow, and you hear it. that. Yeah, crazy, right? CNN wants to sign her for $20 million. It's like, OK, you're, so there's another liar being rewarded. And then obviously you have Brian Williams, who we just talked about. So, yeah, that, that's quite a lineup they have going over there as far as a credibility perspective is concerned.
3: Yeah, and you didn't even mention perhaps the worst of the bunch, which is one of their afternoon hosts, a former Republican staffer. Who, oh, I mean, that show is also pretty unhinged. Actually, this reminds me, one more shot here at NBC yeah. or MSNBC, just since I'm sort of feeling it. Last week <laughs> on election night. I joined the coverage with Brett and Martha for Virginia and New Jersey. I happen to live in Virginia, and I grew up in New Jersey, so I know a thing or two about the politics in those states. They asked me to come on and help break down some of the results, which I did, and we had two news professionals running the show, and they had Bill Hemmer over there at the big wall. On MSNBC, which still does hold itself out as a news network, the triumvirate of hosts was Maddow, Reed – And Wallace, Nicole Wallace. And, I mean, it was like watching a live left-wing therapy session with anger being sort of worked through their system in real time on national television, which I guess was still more interesting and more entertaining than whatever they were doing on CNN because MSNBC had better ratings than CNN. But it was a pretty wild scene to have these three very left-wing opinion hosts anchoring, quote-unquote, their news coverage on an election night.
5: Yeah, I wouldn't mind any of those 3 on that particular network given the context if they're there as a guest, right? As an opinion person. You're an opinion person, I'm an opinion person. That's more than fine. But you have to have somebody who could serve as your Brett Bear, as your Martha McCallum, as your Chris Wallace. They don't have that there anymore. And that's that's a big problem. And even CNN, you know, I turned over to there and and both MSNBC and CNN had the same theme going, which was white supremacy was guiding voters in the suburbs, in Virginia, to vote for Glenn Youngkin, which we obviously know is completely ridiculous, but they're going down that road, and that's why their ratings, I'm seeing ratings now, CNN particularly, they're getting quadrupled in primetime now by Fox, even five, six times the audience, Fox is getting over CNN. They're tripling MSNBC because they keep pushing these narratives over and over again. Instead of having an honest conversation, Bill Maher, he says some things sometimes where I say, boy, that's way over the line. But at least I know I'm getting somebody who's honest and and somebody who is principled and is willing to take on liberals if they say something XYZ that is utterly and totally off the charts uh, so they should sign somebody like that before uh, anybody else that they're going to bring into the mix that's just going to you already know what they're going to say before they say a type of thing and that's why fox does so well because they do have differing perspectives that are on the air where you say huh i never really looked at it that way chris wallace will always surprise you you know in terms of the way, way he comes down on something and some people get mad about that like hey he's not towing the line yeah that's the point <laughs> you're not supposed to toe the line you're supposed to give an honest opinion issue to issue and go from there at least that's what i try to do i know you do that too
3: yeah, and it's certainly not Chris Wallace's job to toe any line. Now, Joe, I do want to ask you. You've now referenced this, so let's come back to it. You yeah. mentioned it in the context of Rachel Maddow, but it's not just Maddow. She might be near the top of the list of offenders on this particular front. But I'm not sure if you read Eric Wemple's column this week, at The Washington Post, their media I did. critic in house. Who's been actually pretty darn tough on the mainstream media when it comes to the Russia investigation, the Steele dossier, the Mueller report, all of this. And he's basically asking the question, are we ever going to get apologies or retractions from these news organizations and media figures who banged the drum eagerly, loudly for years on the Russia story? I remember just cycle after cycle after cycle of breathless coverage that consumed Countless hours in column inches at these outlets, and now a central element of that whole narrative has been just disintegrating. And part of Wemple's critique was saying, suddenly, all of the outlets that couldn't get enough of that story, their interests strangely dried up, and they would do sort of bare minimum perfunctory sort of requisite coverage just to check a box but that was it and they were no longer terribly passionate about the story i think that there's a big element of this entire saga that has to be about media accountability joe accountability
5: <laughs> that is a foreign concept now at this point and look if i make a mistake i'm I'm not going to say more than happy, but I'll go ahead and just say, hey, got this wrong. Here's what I got wrong. Try to do better next time. And all the responses that I'll get on social media, if and when that happens, is always good for you. Wow, that's refreshing. It's good to see that somebody is saying, I made a mistake. I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to move on. We don't see that. It's not in the DNA of any of these people that push this, particularly like a Jake Tapper who was held up on CNN as their Brett Baer, for example. No, he's not. He had Adam Schiff on week after week after week. Adam Schiff was like the Michael Avenatti of cable news in terms of everybody believed what he was saying was gospel, and now, obviously, it's wrong. So what happens with Adam Schiff? We talked about reward for lying before. Adam Schiff has a best-selling book out. He's on a media tour, and outside of Morgan Ortegas, who was actually guest hosting on The View and challenged Schiff on putting the dossier into the congressional record as he did in 2017. No one is doing that with him. So that's how this is going to go. They're all just going to put their heads in the sand, hope that the news cycle blows this over until Donald Trump comes back onto the scene and they could focus on him again and it'll be rinse, is it rinse, lather, repeat? How does that go again, Guy? I think that's how it goes, right?
3: I think that's right. Or lather, yeah. it's
5: lather, lather rinse, rinse, repeat. Lather, repeat, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, because you
3: got to lather the soap before you rinse off the
5: soap, and then you repeat the process. I could see Christine shaking her head into control right now. That's right. Yeah, that's how it goes. So thank you, Christine. That yes, I'm just, I just so, you.
3: that's that's the uh, the hygiene update here on the Guy Benson show. <laughs> and uh, last last point, because you mentioned Trump, it really does seem like the people just watching just the everyday day side coverage in particular on because I just have it on in the background in the studio. I never watch these networks at night, but the amount of Trump coverage On CNN and MSNBC, it's like they, of course, want their audience paying attention and, you know, look how dangerous and horrible this man is. But, boy, do they want him back. They want him back front and center so, so desperately. It's not really that subtle.
5: No, it's not because they realize – their talent is now being shown, right? You see, oh, wow, maybe Nicole Wallace isn't that talented or Chris Cuomo isn't that talented. They had those great numbers. They had those great numbers because they were Trump-fueled. You take Trump out of the room, it's like taking Tony Sopranos off the Sopranos or J.R. Ewing off of Dallas. You've lost your central boogeyman. You've lost your central character. There's nothing, no real reason to watch anymore. So, yeah, if they don't get him back, if he decides not to run, and I know I always anger people when I say this, I hope he does not run because I think if you put up any decent Republican, whether it be DeSantis or Scott or Noam or or Haley, you will win 40 states. I can guarantee that because if your <laughs> competition is either Joe Biden, who will be in his 80s and has to defend this record on like seven fronts where he's failing miserably on the most major issues, or if it's Kamala Harris, who's at 28% approval, or, okay, roll the dice and put Pete Buttigieg up there and let him defend the supply chain crisis and how well he's addressing that right now. He's over in Glasgow, Scotland uh, talking about climate instead of on long beach california in terms of that port or savannah georgia that port newark new jersey that port instead of addressing the problem so yeah whoever the democrats run will assuredly if things continue this way and there's no reason to, to believe why it won't continue this way Any good Republican like DeSantis particularly would wipe the floor with them. If Trump runs, then I say it's 50-50 because it motivates the other side to do the anything but Trump vote. And then the media is going to focus solely on Trump and his personality instead of the issues. And we see how much issues really matter, Guy. And that's all I want, an issues-based campaign like Yunkin versus McAuliffe. And we saw how that worked out in a blue state.
3: I'm not sure about 40 states, right? That's a lot, but I think it could be awfully competitive. I I think many people would agree at least on that point. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, media critic, as you can tell, based on this segment. Joe, always appreciate it. See you in Florida.
5: All right, Guy. We'll see you there. I'll bring the suntan oil and the (laughs) Casamigos.
3: Sounds good. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's a happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We did some woke tales in the last hour. If you miss it, you can go back on the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. And as we've been mentioning this week, there are some people on the left, a growing chorus, almost like they were all activated at once to decide that we shouldn't say terms like woke. It's because they're losing. They're unpopular. They're annoying. They're alienating. And so they're constantly having to shift The lexicon shift the vocabulary of acceptable words that we can use to describe their various proposed excesses. They don't want to be criticized, so they play these language policing games. Now, what is part of my evidence that they're losing? We praised Netflix recently on this program because they refused to back down when some people got very angry about Dave Chappelle and his latest stand-up. And they called him all the names and it's transphobic and all this stuff. And ultimately, the CEO said, no, we're not going to take down the special. Your concerns are noted. Good day. Some people who got particularly up in arms, who crashed a leadership meeting and made a whole scene, were actually reprimanded and suspended at the company. So there were some consequences for this nuttiness. And the media spent a lot of time screaming about this. And the number of people who are on board for this crazy magnified cancel culture, it's a very small minority. There's a poll from The Hill and Harris where they asked the American people, to what extent do you believe that cancel culture has gone too far? Obviously, we are very much in that camp. I wrote a book with Mary Catherine Hamm called End of Discussion about cancel culture basically before That term was even coined back in 2015. I encourage you to buy that book. End of discussion. It was ahead of its time, unfortunately still very relevant. But one of our premises was most people don't like this. They're not on board for it. There's a sliver of society with a huge megaphone that's warping the entire conversation and intimidating people even though they don't represent anything close to the majority. And this poll bears it out. To what extent do you believe that cancel culture has gone too far? Overall, 71% strongly or somewhat believe that cancel culture is out of hand. 71% versus 29% who say otherwise. Among Republicans, it's 76%. So more than three quarters of Republicans. But Democrats and independents are right there too. Right around 70% of both of those groups. So, even within the left wing coalition, the people who are increasingly calling the shots in academia, in culture, in these culture wars, they are vastly outnumbered by normal people across the political spectrum. And we, the non woke, the non culture, the non cancel mob, should start acting more like it. Disempower these people, ignore them. They deserve to be ignored. And on that happy note, The Guy Benson Show continues right after this on The Happy Hour.
2: Guy Benson.
3: It's The Happy Hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Kimberly Strassel from The Wall Street Journal, a Fox News contributor. She joined us earlier talking about the Durham investigation, recent indictments, and the media. We got to a lot on that front. Strassel's been at the forefront of this issue now for years, and we had a great conversation. Here's part of it. I referenced your column from last week a few different times on the show involving the updates in this Durham investigation into the Russia investigation, its origins, the way that it was carried out, by the Justice Department and everyone involved. I think there's obviously a media angle here as well. We've talked to a number of people who are up to speed on this case and have really followed it quite closely, including Molly Hemingway and Andy McCarthy. I would put you right there with anyone in terms of your expertise on the Russia investigation and now these Durham revelations that I think it's just two indictments so far, but these indictments tell quite a story If there are one or two really important takeaways that our listeners need to know about what is happening and what we're learning, from your perspective, what would those takeaways be?
0: Sure. I think the number one takeaway is that for the past however many years, we've all been referring to this dossier as the Christopher Steele dossier. Uh, named obviously after this former British intelligence officer who wrote it and which was pitched to the United States as an intelligence product. It's more correct to say now, given the Durham indictments, that this was a Clinton dossier, um, because we now know, we've known for some time, that it was in fact commissioned by the Clinton campaign. But what we found from the Durham indictment is that it turns out that at least to some of the information that went into it actually came from someone within the Clinton orbit, a man named Charles Dolan, who is a longtime Clinton crony, as it were, a, a longtime activist in Democratic politics. Uh, so the campaign's fingerprints are all over this from beginning to end, from the information that went into it to the fact that it was commissioned, to the fact that it made it out to the press and was pushed that way. There's still things to discover there. So that would be one thing. The other thing, which is just very, very striking, is that for years now we were told that uh, the dossier explained how it was that the Russians were helping Trump in this campaign. And um, uh, uh, even though the dossier has been discredited, that's been the storyline. If you look at this indictment, it, what's really striking is the degree to which it looked like Russians were assisting Mrs. Clinton, at least within her endeavor to get this dossier as part of the storyline.
3: So there could have been Russian disinformation in the dossier itself that was contributed to by Clinton World and paid for by Clinton World, perhaps with an assist from Russians peddling disinformation to harm Donald Trump and his campaign. And I I just want to add, we know that the Russians, in other ways, were absolutely rooting for Trump or were trying to help Trump or hurt the Clintons, but it, it seems increasingly likely that they were, to some extent, playing both sides here.
0: Right. And, you know, it's quite extraordinary. The indictment goes out of its way to point out its concern about who all Danchenko, Igor Danchenko, the primary source for Christopher Steele in this dossier,
3: how many people... Who was just indicted, told... right? Danchenko was indicted, right. and today he pleaded not guilty. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Correct. Yep, no, And but the indictment expresses alarm at how many people Danchenko told he was working on this project. People from all over corners of the globe, including other Russians, Um, so that's something that, by the way, Durham goes out of his way to point out here and leaves you to understand that the concern is that the more people who knew he was working on this project, the more opportunity for people to, or for instance, Russians to peddle information for him that would serve, as you say,
3: disinformation. My full interview with Kimberly Strassel available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also as part of the free podcast every day on demand. Again, that's no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch has cookie producer Christine gotten duped by another politician with a sappy family story? Sounds like it. We'll explain straight ahead. For the full
2: interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home
3: stretch. Wednesday edition here on the Guy Benson show. And we do have an update. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has emerged. All right. This was kind of this third or fourth tier story about how Newsom hadn't been seen in public for now the better part of two weeks, I think almost exactly two weeks. We started tuning into this a couple of days ago. And part of the problem was, and this was based on reporting and journalism. In California, including from non-conservative outlets, saying, "Well, Democrats and Newsom's family are bristling at these questions, but the questions are being fueled by the lack of transparency from the governor's office, from the governor himself. Right? He's often very visible out and about doing all sorts of things. He has disappeared from public eye for two weeks. That is unusual. Why is that happening?" We're not getting good answers, so people are speculating. And I'm sure some of the speculation was crazy. Some of it may have been more reasonable. But it was a curious thing for the governor of the largest state in the country, who loves the cameras and loves to be out in public, for him to go away for basically two weeks. It's strange. There were reports that he was showing up for work. He was in the governor's office. He was making phone calls. He was reviewing important issues. He also apparently attended a very lavish Wedding in San Francisco. Officiated by Nancy Pelosi without a mask, I believe, by the way, indoors, maybe she was just feeling the spirit. For an extremely wealthy couple. Earth, wind and fire reportedly played at the wedding. So I'm sure that was a lot of fun. I'm sure a lot of spirit was being felt. Despite the rules that other people have to live by. In any case, he has reemerged and he has an explanation of what happened. Foxnews.com has the story. California Governor Gavin Newsom said he abruptly pulled out of the International Climate Change Summit to go trick-or-treating with his family. He went as a pirate. Governor faced criticism in recent days after he abruptly canceled his trip to Scotland over, quote, family obligations. Local news outlet KABC reported that Newsom's trip had been in the works for more than a year Then on Saturday, the governor sparked further criticism after reportedly attending an oil heiress's wedding officiated, here we go, by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, after a week of no public appearances. During his first appearance since the backlash on Tuesday, Newsom said at the California Economic Summit, this is where he reemerged, that he canceled his trip to go trick-or-treating with his kids and assuage his dad guilt. Quote, it's been a hell of a couple of years for all of us, for each and every one of you, particularly parents. The fits and starts at school, the stresses of balancing your responsibilities at work, also your responsibilities at home. He said this is especially true of a lot of fathers. He's, again, going on here with a quote, I've been on this damn treadmill. We've gone from crisis to crisis, from wildfires to extremes, drought, social justice, unrest, obviously with COVID, this recall you may have read about. He said he was out to dinner with his family when his children held an intervention because they couldn't believe, quoting again, that I was going to miss Halloween. He ultimately decided to stay home because the knot in his stomach was too much to bear. I had no damn choice. I had to cancel that trip, he said. He went on to say since he spent Halloween and that weekend with his family, he has since become father of the year. So that's the story. He was gone from the public eye since I believe the date was October 28th because his kids were upset that he'd been traveling a lot and busy and not spending time with them. And now he's going to go jet off to Scotland for another official obligation. And they were like, we never see you around anymore. Please stay home and spend Halloween with us and trick or treat with us. He felt bad. He decided to do it, canceled the trip and spent time with his family. So it was a dad thing. This is what he says. Now, do I fully doubt that this contributed to some of these actions or decisions? No, I I think that's probably part of it. It right, seems plausible, certainly someone who bought this whole thing, hook, line and sinker for sure instantly was none other than producer Christine, who apparently has a soft spot for manipulative Democrats who talk about family obligations and play up family angles to paper over obvious flaws. We all recall that she was a big Andrew Cuomo stan for months during the pandemic. She was one of those people, like she was a Cuomo sexual or whatever. Couldn't get enough of him. Isn't this wonderful? She called him my Andy. Like, unironically, my Andy, she would talk about on our show planning calls. Of course, her Andy was forcing seniors into nursing homes when they were infected with COVID, leading to outbreaks and needless suffering, hospitalization and death, then covered it up and lied about it endlessly. And then when the extent of his terrible leadership... And his self-serving cover-up was at last revealed it was mea culpa time for Christine. I can't believe I fell for this. My Andy was just playing us all along. What a horrible thing he did here, right? This is what Christine confessed finally, belatedly. Others could see through it, right? She was one of those people who was like tuning into Chris Cuomo's show, thrilled and delighted by their conversations about mom's favorite and, you know, Italian food or whatever hijinks they were up to while the cover-up was underway, and allegedly while he was just, like, you know, grabbing and harassing women all over the place. He put on quite a show, and Christine was the intended audience for that show, and it worked, at least for a while. So guess what? Today, we finally hear from Newsom. It's been a while, as we mentioned, out in California. And Christine, breathless, on the call, the show planning call, she's like, well, guess what? He was just being a good dad. You know what? I have to say this, you know, I, I just feel bad now that anyone who's Criticizing this, and I just think this is great. Is Gavin Newsom now my Gavin, Christine? Um, You're I, buying this?
1: I, I don't need to say the whole name. It's Gav. Me and Gav. Um, You're
3: Gav. Got it.
1: Listen, if you actually listen to the audio, you will hear something in his voice that actually sounds convincing. That he really didn't have a choice. I, If you had to ask me, I think this was more about the wife. Then the kids maybe saying, Hey, you know what? You need to spend more time with the kids and I can relate to that, you know?
3: Right. So no so I understand why you're saying it's plausible. And again, I'm not dismissing it. And given some of the rumors and conjecture, I'm glad that it appears that he's fine, right? Because some people were saying maybe he's unwell and, and it seems like he's fine. Here's the issue, and I brought this up, and you admittedly on the call this morning had not thought of this. So if I have the timeline correct, he vanished from the public eye October 28th, 29th. He had his booster shot right around the 28th, I believe it was, and then was not seen in public, did not do any public appearances at all until today. So that would be the 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, and today's the 10th. So you add that all up, that's 14 days. Let's call it 13 days to be generous. Even if you say every single syllable of that story about his kids and the trick-or-treating, dad of the year, not in his stomach, guilt about being gone, even if every syllable was accurate, and maybe it was, I'm, I'm willing to just cede for the sake of argument, that's all true. That would explain October 29th, October 30th, October 31st, which was a Sunday. What explains November 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th?
1: A candy hangover? I really don't know. I had I like yeah. like we talked about on, uh, on the meeting phone call. I I didn't think about that because he was so compelling when I listened to him say he First had all, no damn choice.
3: I'm not surprised that part of your hypothetical invented on the fly excuse for him involves a hangover, sort of like a go to excuse perhaps for Cookie Christine. But I think what you're doing here is you are revealing that you are the mark. For these types of catch-all excuses. Because oh, I immediately, I you told it to me. You're like, oh, well, it was Halloween and the kids and the trick-or-treating. I'm like, well, I remember that Halloween was on a Sunday. What about, you know, the following, let's say he had the you know, the candy hangover on Monday. What about Tuesday? It is now the following Wednesday, not that coming Wednesday, the following Wednesday. And you're like, oh yeah, it didn't even occur to me about the 10 days in November. I didn't even think of that because he was talking about his family, and it seemed believable. So, yeah, I, I didn't. it didn't occur to me. It didn't even cross my mind. And that's – again, this is not the biggest scandal of all time. I don't really care that much. He's not my governor. I would have never voted for him in the first place. I wouldn't live in California unless you paid me huge, huge sums of money to live there just so I could afford it. And I think some of the stuff being thrown around on the internet was ridiculous and silly. I do have to say when a politician – goes away, who cannot get enough attention, right? Cameras and sound bites and all of it. He loves that stuff. For him to be gone for two weeks and his excuse involves a holiday that is at best one weekend, okay, that explains for a fraction of the days missed. But I think they're counting on, oh, isn't that sweet? He's doing dad stuff. He's dad of the year. He gave up this work related activity so he could balance his, you know, his work and his private life, and this is terrific, and then just sort of lose track of the other nine or ten days. And it worked. It worked for you. So maybe this was a smart strategy on his part.
1: It did, but don't forget I was also the person that said Anthony Weiner was actually set up with that picture on Twitter. So I'm not sure.
3: (sighs) I keep getting – Wait, hang on. This is something new that I didn't know about you. Yes, you you knew about that. I did not know that. You were an Anthony Weiner believer?
1: I did. I thought he was getting set up. Remember, I told you. I thought you he... think he was hacked when he's yes. like, "Oh, the
3: toaster got hacked." Yes, You're like, he did get hacked. The toaster did get hacked.
1: Yes, I thought he got hacked, and I felt awful for him. Remember, I, saw, I told you he was going to be the next mayor of New York City, and the reason. Remember, I lost a bet. I wanted. I don't know if you knew. Well, this. I remember
3: this part that I you that you really thought he was going to become the next mayor. Some of your instincts are very interesting, Christine. I'm trying to figure this out, and, and here's the thing. So. Anthony Weiner comes out with some story about getting hacked and Andrew Cuomo is putting on this big show with his brother on CNN while he's doing all this horrible stuff behind the scenes. And in this case, Gavin Newsom is explaining two weeks of absence based on two days. And you're like, yep, absolutely. Sounds good to me. But when that poor old woman approached you in your own neighborhood needing help because she was disoriented after dark and couldn't find her house – Your immediate assumption about her was that she was in cahoots with kidnappers who were going to show up in a van and drag you away. So ultra-paranoid, insane skepticism of a poor old lady who needed your help in your own neighborhood, but just like marching along with a smile on your face and saluting belief of these sleazeball politicians. Why?
1: I have some things I should probably uh, think about (laughs) over the next few days and prioritize because you're right, but I have to say I still believe that I was being cautious because you never know if I could have been trafficked. I know I'm 40, and I'm probably not the the age range that people are looking for, but you just never know. I'm a young 40.
3: Yeah, so you assume that the elderly woman yes. in your neighborhood was part of a vast trafficking scheme targeting you, but— But Andrew Cuomo, your your Andy's on the up and up.
1: He was just talking about mom's little meatball. That's all he was talking about.
3: You know, I think that when you visit your official paid therapist next time, I know that I'm the unofficial unpaid one. But when you actually sit down uh, with whoever, you know, cookie shrink next time, maybe explore this one. Maybe try to open this box and, and dig deep a little bit into the trust issues that seem to be at play here. In both directions. I'm just putting that out there. I'm just putting it out there. All right, back here for the Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Looking forward to that. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow. Have a great evening. We will talk to you then. Mom's a little meatball.
2: The business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.